0: The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP.
1: And welcome to the Western Mass Business Show. I'm Tara Brewster, and my guest today is Dallas Ducar, who is the CEO of Trans Health in the Northampton area. Hi, Dallas. How
2: are you? Hey there. So happy to be here today. Thanks for having me.
1: Um, I'm so happy that you're here too.
2: Um, I can't believe that this is your first time to the station, but welcome. Thank you. I'm honored that this is the first time that this is happening. <laughs> I, who better to be doing this with than you? Well, I feel
1: I feel really lucky um, that I could do this, and now I'm sure everyone else will call you and watch. You on their shows too. So, um, so you're the CEO of Trans Health. But before we talk about Trans Health, which I really do want to do, I want to talk a little bit about you because since we met maybe a year ago or so, I've just been in awe about the way that you lead and how you show up in the world, um, and I'm shocked that you've only been here since 2019. Yeah. So, will you tell the listeners a little bit about how you landed in Western Massachusetts?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, so it was 2019, 20. 2020, really. And uh, that, if people remember, was the start of a global pandemic. And so healthcare was changing. And I had worked at Mass General Hospital at the Transgender Health Program there. And I was actually a new nurse practitioner there too. So I had been a nurse before, an EMT before. I came here from Virginia and prior to that, uh, Arizona. And You know, I had never really set foot in New England. And so I was in Cambridge and Boston for less than a year. And then the pandemic hit. And I was asked to come out here and help start a place called Trans Health. Um, At that time, we didn't have a name. We didn't have a a logo, (laughs) a mission, a vision. We were not incorporated. There was nothing there. And so it really was during March and April when we started just Forming an initial team and a vision of what could happen.
1: So, why you? Why were you tapped to come out to Western
2: Massachusetts from Boston? I ask myself that question <laughs> all the time. Um, you know, I, I think uh, it was at the our board chair, uh, Perry Cohen, and myself. We both uh, had met earlier, and we just dis- began putting ideas together about what this could look like. Um, and this had been also a dream of our board chairs for a while now um, and really wanted a, a place. He wanted a place that would be uh, affirming in Western Mass where people wouldn't have to drive two or three hours to go get good care, either in you know Boston or Providence, Rhode Island or um, any large cities. And so Myself, I then also brought in the experience under operations as a nurse, the boots in the ground experience, specifically, also as an EMT and a nurse practitioner. And I will also believe, at least, that my philosophy degree actually helped here too in being able to dream a little bit as to what this could actually be and how we could think about healthcare differently. Because healthcare, whether it was then or whether it's now, has been in a dire state in the US. And this was really an attempt to re-envision what healthcare could be when we put people at the center of that equation. And so that's where we started. And I believe that it was my firsthand experience and lived experience too as a transgender person that really helped to shape those initial roots and provide a vision to where we are now with over 50 employees. Uh, now a, a growing location, and uh, really, really um, expansive services that we provide compared to just a couple years ago when we were just two or three people.
1: Is this the place that you envisioned yourself being, or or trans health being in this moment? You know, are you are you sort of thinking that uh, fifty people? How many patients you have? I think it's around. 2,000, 3,000, maybe, patients. Um, is that sort of on on trend with what you had anticipated this far out?
2: No. No, I, I had anticipated something much smaller around this time in 2020. You know, I was thinking that this would be a, a, a small rural community clinic, essentially, at the very beginning of this, and it would take time to really glo- grow those clinical services. And maybe in... in five years, we'd be where we are now. But never underestimate what a group of committed queer people can do. <laughs> I won't, I <laughs> promise, I never have. And, <laughs> and it, it, it grew, just to clarify, we now see patients across all of New England, right? Especially because at that time, we saw the advent of telehealth too. And that allowed hard to reach providers, hard to reach uh, clinics in general to expand access pretty dramatically. And then what I did not expect too is that there would be such a strong reception from the Commonwealth and from our elected leaders, uh, people like Senator Joe Comerford, Representative Lindsey Sabadosa, our governor, um, our AG, many, many people who came out to support trans health and to ensure that people feel safe and protected and work to think about how we can make this type of healthcare more sustainable.
1: And so the partnership that you talk about, you know, was that sort of something that was easy to forge and to build? Were the legislators here looking for that? Or was that driven by your board and your leadership um, to find that synergy and that, you know, sort of partnership that you needed to get to where you're at now?
2: Yeah, I would say that was something that I really brought to the organization. Uh, There was an a general interest in advocacy, but it was really advocating for for the immediate patient needs, which is really, really vitally important, or advocating for the person who's in front of you. Um, But there was not a uh, initial notion of a systemic maybe approach to advocacy and what we needed. And so early, early on at TransHealth, we, uh, and this was a lot of me really championing for this too, instead of four pillars so while we provide clinical care we also another one of our pillars is advocacy another one is research another one is education and that is all supported by community too and that community intersects all these pillars the community is who we asked what was needed at the very beginning of this when a needs assessment was done prior to even starting the organization and then as we moved into each of these pillars always going back to the community and asking what is needed. And from the very beginning, I had the great fortune to work with uh, Senator Comerford and Representative Sabadosa and Representative Dom, and many others who went out of their way to tour TransHealth to get to know me individually, to get to know our providers, our clinicians, get to see what's actually happening, and then help direct us to the right people who could help make change them and others. And that concluded now in this past budget session in $500,000 that's allocated for a new public health uh, activity uh, under administered under HHS, this on the state level, that expands education to uh, other providers, other clinicians around gender affirming care, right. Mm-hmm. That happened, that started from an op-ed, that we wrote at Trans Health, right? So
1: many op So many, yes. Over a hundred, I think, is on your website. <laughs> I was like, bit. oh, wait, I can't read all these. <laughs> I, <was laughs> like, I
2: can't do it. But it starts again. It so can... impressive. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. But it, it goes back to that, you know, that, that desire uh, for theory, right? Philosophy, writing, putting ideas down on paper, and then saying this is how practically we can actually do it, right? Let's not just talk about it. Let's do it. And to be able to see that response, to be able to see uh, – Local leaders like the mayor really uh, help uh, us understand how to apply for ARPA funding, for example, which was able to help our organization too. Um, to work directly with folks on Senator Markey's team and have Senator Markey come out to Western Mass, come and tour Trans Health uh, and understand first from his own perspective and from his team's perspective the impact that we're having. You know, that's it was only possible with those initial connections and that. Real desire to be an advocate and to bring about systematic change, and I will say now I think that's really uh, helped Trans Health to be one of the many leaders in this place of gender affirming healthcare, not only on a statewide level but nationally.
1: And so, the five hundred thousand dollars is that going to go through Trans Health for education and advocacy, or is that going to be like a state run? So
2: that that is, um, if you look at the program Micpap. Uh, it's the Massachusetts Child, Psychi- Massachusetts Child Psychiatry Access Program. Lots of words. Mm-hmm. Or uh, MCPAP for Moms, which is the Massachusetts Child Psychiatry Access Program for Moms. Both of those programs are administered through DPH and basically a provider... Uh, is able, like your pediatrician, is able to call an expert and say, hey, let's get this kid child psychiatry. So it's that same model, but for gender affirming care. So that it really goes around wait lines and instead says you can go to your, stay with your pediatrician, stay with your provider, and you can still get expert medically sound care. And so that's really uh, the model it's based off of, and it will be administered through DPH. That's
1: amazing, because I know the lines are still very long for people to get mental health care yeah. um, whether you're a kid or an adult and um, it's nice to have that ability and that access provided a little bit easier totally um, yeah. and this
2: would be mental health care and primary
1: care which is amazing amazing well here we are at our first break I'm Tara Brewster you've been listening to the Western Mass Business Show and my guest today is Dallas Ducar who's the CEO of Trans Health. we'll be right back
0: the Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP.
1: Welcome back to the Western Mass Business Show. I'm Tara Brewster, and my guest today is Dallas Ducar, who's the CEO of Trans Health. And we're talking about gender affirming care and the state of health care and Massachusetts and how Dallas arrived here in Western Massachusetts from Boston, from Virginia, from Arizona. Um, And one thing I was noticing while I was trying to um, prepare for our interview was all of the alphabet soup that's after your name, Um, and I, I could not do it. I could not figure all of them out, so I don't know if you want to run through it for everyone so that we understand all of the ways that you've been studying all of your life. And you're not old, by the way, so just so people know this, it's things to shoot for. For all of us out there. Well, it might be
2: hypercompensation. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about that. Uh, I, so I actually had to Google what letters were behind my
1: name. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel better now. Yeah. Some of these I, I honestly have not seen before. But... Yeah, well, nursing is full of alphabet soup
2: in that way. But... Um, so, so these are all nursing related. They're all they're all nursing related. All right. yeah. So there's one, yeah. two,
1: three, four, five, five of them.
2: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, MSN is Masters in Science in Nursing. Uh, RN is Registered Nurse. NP is uh, Nurse Practitioner. Uh, CNL is the program I was in in my first master's, a clinical nurse leader. And then FAAN is Fellow of the American Academy of Nursing, for which I'm one of the youngest people to be inducted to the academy. I was inducted last year. Um, and one that's not listed there that was, uh, at one point, but I, uh, did not renew the certification was an EMT, but that is actually one that I really hold close to my heart because that was my entry point into healthcare and understanding public health specifically.
1: And how old were you when you were an EMT?
2: That was uh, right after undergrad. We had a volunteer rescue squad in Charlottesville, Virginia. And if folks will remember what was happening in Charlottesville, Virginia around that time, there was also a uh, alt-right terrorist attack that occurred during that time, too. And I was one of the responders during that time and when uh, other hate groups had uh, come into Charlottesville uh, during the last presidency. So it was a momentous time for our town, but I was... Um, honored to be able to serve the public during that time uh, while also training to uh, be a nurse too
1: were you called to be an EMT before all of those issues yeah. and sort of hate and awful things were happening in Charlottesville or did you choose to do this after
2: all of that arose no oh, it was it was I started before um, and we did not have any idea uh, what would become a Charlottesville on one day um, but I was really called to it. Uh, I, I started um, again as a, a philosophy major and a neuroscience major but also studied bioethics and I had been on various uh, bioethics um, consult services and hospitals uh, really there to help ask ethical questions and that drew me towards Um, the complex questions, many of which I found in psychiatry specifically and mental health. And uh, that then really made me more interested in trying to serve people and their mental health needs outside of a confined setting like a hospital. That's then what led to my segue into wanting to respond to crisis as an EMT initially. And why I began to volunteer as an EMT, especially because I found many people, there were great people on our squad, but many people were just, they really wanted to be there for the physical trauma, but not necessarily emotional or psychological or, or spiritual concerns that people had. So it was really, 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 truly a privilege because when you're a student, especially, you only end up traversing one or two or three paths. You stay in these bubbles, right? And when you volunteer for something like an emergency medical service, you randomly get sent to people's houses anywhere in your area. And it could be people who are you know, rich, people who are poor, people who are of one socioeconomic status or another, people who uh, are of one culture or another, uh, many different people with many different backgrounds, right? And you get to have the honor of entering into their home and meeting them in a liminal space. So that was really foundational for me, especially meeting people during crisis, too. Mm-hmm. And so,
1: how has that sort of informed the work or the leadership that you have at Trans Health? You know, how are you coming with that lens that's sort of the mind, spirit, uh, energy force field rather than necessarily the physical, um, as like the, the front runner, you know, yeah. cause obviously the physical is, is important, but you know, how are you caretaking for those other paradigms?
2: Yeah. Well, I, I would say when I was an EMT and even when I was a psychiatric nurse, you know, you enter into any type of space, with what you have in your hands, right? With yourself, with your body, with your presence. And it trained me early on to be in the moment and to be there with the individual regardless of what's happening. I, at the same time, was doing research on mindfulness and compassion in healthcare too. The belief that we could teach compassion, the belief that Actually, mindfulness would reduce clinical errors in healthcare too, and that people could actually show up and be authentic at work. All of those values, and the the presence that was trained in me early on as a clinician, really led to what I would want to call authentic leadership, where you're bringing your whole self to work each and every day, and that really formed the basic foundation of our values at Trans Health. How can we create a place? where people can truly be themselves. Not just our our patients or clients, Mm -hmm. right? But our team too. Healthcare is suffering right now from the the lack of people that want to even enter healthcare in the first place, right? We're seeing people have left in droves and we're seeing very high uh, mental health distress and even suicide rates in our physician colleagues Mm -hmm. and, and nurses. And so how do we instead create a healing space for our team and for our patients and start by creating a place where people can truly be themselves. And I will say, as of the last team survey we did at TransHealth, 100% of our team says that TransHealth is a place where they can be themselves. And that is remarkable for a healthcare setting. We see that same data in our patients too. That is remarkable. That does not happen in healthcare.
1: And so showing up as your whole self, showing up as your authentic self, what does that look like how does that sort of show up or or if i was a patient at trans health or an employee at trans health how would i notice that like what would the different markers be yeah um and i've been in your space so i <laughs> i i could definitely say you know it's it's warm and welcoming and um you know uh comfortable and there's a lot of touches that i don't see in other healthcare settings but i'm interested to hear from you just how that might be reflected um, from the team and also from from patient care.
2: Yeah, well, it starts at least with our many of our team members obviously introducing themselves, their names, their pronouns, and then asking right, and that just just being curious about identity, right? Being curious about who you are. I mean, how many healthcare providers have you gone to? that are curious about who you are, who, your identity, your I was dreams. just thinking
1: about that. You know, um, no one has ever said, uh, you know, hi, Tara, how are you, and and what are your pronouns? What are your preferred pronouns? Yeah. I mean, sometimes they're showing up on um, sheets, you know, where you can mm-hmm. put them down now, but they're not really that personal interaction, no.
2: As one of our patients said, it trans health, I'm not a box to be checked. And that's what we're going for here, right? It's not you know, just enter the data into a system and make sure that we've collected it and have a good rate. Mm -hmm. But actually forming that co-created relationship between two individuals, two humans, right? The history of medicine is one where you walk into a room and you're taught as a clinician to see illness, to see pathology. And so instead, it's asking what's right with you Mm -hmm. too. Where do you want to go? How do we help you get there? And being okay, being humble enough to say, I don't know, Many, many clinicians across the board want to be experts, right? I think they're
1: expected to be too. Mm -hmm. You know, societal pressure puts like all of this, you know, sort of just you're supposed to know and you're supposed to have all the answers. And so there's this expectation of knowledge and and wisdom that might not necessarily be there.
2: Yes, exactly. And that's just, you know, something that historically with those expectations has been a lot of pressure too, and it's just not always accurate. And so instead being able to be humble about things, to be able to say, you know, I don't know, to be able to meet someone where they are, to be able to fight tooth and nail for your patient because you believe patient-centered care is necessary, and connect that person to community-focused care, our community groups that we have that are not just clinically oriented, but theater, but Video games, but support groups. I mean, just expanding what healthcare can be. That's where we start, and that is authenticity—not having insurance decide what healthcare is, but you decide what healthcare is.
1: I don't think I've ever heard anyone in healthcare say that they were going to refer me to, to like a, you know, like theater or you know some other modality that that could you know fill up my my bucket that was needed that wasn't necessarily healthcare um, centric. So I think that's a really phenomenal um, suggestion and line of thinking from TransHealth. So this is Tara Brewster. You've been listening to the Western Mass Business Show. I'm here today with Dallas Ducar, who's the CEO of TransHealth. We'll be right back.
0: The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP.
1: Welcome back to the Western Mass Business Show. I'm Tara Brewster and I'm here today with Dallas Ducar, who is the CEO of Trans Health, and we are talking about health care and all of the ways that healthcare clinicians, practitioners, nurses, people, humans can show up for patients and what patient care should look like, could look like, and is being revolutionized to look like. Um, my question is: How many times has sort of this happened in healthcare? You know, you talked a little bit about how there's an expectation of the the care provider to be all-knowing and you know a little bit benevolent of of all things. Um, but you know, how has this model or other models or the healthcare model sort of been um, changed over time since it first started? You know, is this a fifth iteration? Is this how it's going to be mm. for a while? I mean, you know, where are we going? Is this gonna is this gonna work for more than just places like Trans Health? More places than just Western Mass? Because I feel like we do live in a super bubble here of of not only blue but just like of, of expansive thought and a little bit of emotional intimacy and uh, emotional intelligence, if you will. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. I'd love to get your perspective on that because you were so in the know with all of these
2: things. Yeah. Well, if you look at the history of healthcare care, there's really no institutionalized history of healthcare care. Before really the the late 1800s, early 1900s, I mean, most care was really delivered by a lot of different nurses and midwives in the 1800s, 1700s, there were some, you know, physicians, um, but there really wasn't a formalized, uh, you know, program for physicians. And a lot of care was really, passed down especially through uh different nurses or midwives in early histories uh in, in healing people in a small community in some way um some were actually said to be witches at times too and there's lots of literature on that but we won't digress to a huge history lesson. I will say that.
1: <laughs> I, I'm laughing because I was just at Historic Northampton and they had this whole series of Northampton history and they were plays that were acted out and one of them was um, the story of the Parsons family, mm-hmm. um, who was a well known witch in our area. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um,
2: Getting to spooky called, time, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: I know. It's like
2: being called. Yeah. Calling the spirits. Yes. But we uh, you know, then saw institutionalized health care, especially with the forming of the American Medical Association and the American Nurses Association, um, that there was more formalized education and training. And we saw... It generally, then, also with the uh, after World War II, um, a lot of uh, insurance programs starting to be offered by employers. And the United States is one of the only countries in the world that offers uh, insurance through employers, right? And that was really as a benefits package that was offered way back in World War II to attract people to different jobs. Um, and unfortunately, it is stuck. in whereas other countries have single payer systems, right? Um, and then as we saw, you know, progress through that, we we then also saw more uh, formalized, institutionalized health care and especially uh, lots of dollars be concentrated in larger hospitals, for example. And then eventually now to the point of specialty care, where you really don't see in today's day and era, primary care, mental health raking in the big bucks, where you see the economic real uh, Winners in healthcare, so to speak, is in specialty services, especially places like maybe surgery, for example, um, maybe in uh, larger oncology centers, for example. Um, and so there's a less of an incentive for people to enter into primary care or mental health, and you also see uh, less incentive for uh, you know the shingle to be put out, and you have you know one doc or one provider, one NP, who's out there starting their new practice. If anything, you're seeing smaller practice being gobbled up by larger primary care groups.
1: And by less of in- less incentive, you mean less pay? Yep. Less protection, like legally
2: for insurance? Uh, less, Less pay, less financial incentive to be, so less ability to really stay financially sustainable in those spaces. And,
1: and- I'm just thinking, you know, is it are people making choices to do that despite of the the pay gap i mean you know when i think about here mm-hmm. we have so many nonprofits we have a lot of people that choose nonprofit because of their values and their mm-hmm. internal compass mm-hmm. um are people wanting to to do that and making choices around that or you're just seeing more people joining larger practices rather than hanging their own shingle
2: it's actually financially not sustainable for people to just rely on that one clinical payment model and try to still protect enough time with the patient, right? So traditionally, it's been you know okay, you have thirty minutes or an hour to be with that patient, right? Now, if you've been to a primary care provider recently, it's squeezed into ten minutes, five minutes, you fifteen minutes. You're lucky if you even get to see the person who you're supposed to be seeing versus maybe. You know someone else who's assisting there, and they're maybe coming in and just reading a chart. Um, you're seeing time squished so that they can increase the volume of patients coming through, because insurance has continued to reimburse less over time for each subsequent visit. So it's not really the decision on the primary care provider, but instead the reimbursement model is just really low, right? So it becomes very difficult, especially in a primary care practice when it's not just providing for that one provider but also maybe a, a medical assistant or clinical tech or, or nurse or the support staff, people at the front desk that, that comes with. So when you ask about sustainability at TransHealth we have been exploring alternative funding models uh, and we are a nonprofit. Uh, we rely heavily on donations. We're exploring in, uh, pharmacy programs to really additionally suppl- supplement uh, more revenue. Um, Exploring also uh, different service lines, too, to really look outside of just offering primary care and mental health, but it allows the whole model to then work and allows us at TransHealth to protect that time. It is impossible for us to schedule anything less than a 30-minute visit or hour-long visit. Hour-long if you're new, 30 minutes if you're a return patient. That's just not happening, really, in the primary care space. Um, if we have integrated uh, visits uh, where y- we can at least have a individual see a primary care provider, and then that person, that provider, can then consult with a mental health provider too. That just doesn't really happen that often, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we have the ability to uh, have larger uh, referrals to many different uh, areas within the organization, including the community services that I talked about, too. And our nation's top doctor has talked about an epidemic of loneliness that exists in this country that is driving political partisan divides, that is driving uh, chronic health conditions and and increasing them. That's worsening mental health rates of uh, mental illness rates, rather. Um, And we're seeing deaths of despair. And I believe that if we have different models like this that are able to connect people to community, community-focused care, person-centered care, time-protected with your providers, and using healthcare as a vehicle to combat the loneliness epidemic, you see large public health gains. And that's what this is about, is healing people in an interconnected fashion. So while this might be specific to Western Mass, I do believe that this is a model that can be adopted anywhere else in the country, not just for trans people, but for any population. And is the model being
1: adopted other places? Are there other places like trans health in this
2: nation? I I would say that there are a lot of places that talk about person-centered care, a lot of places that do, I'm sure, practice elements of person-centered care and holistic care. Um, but, you know, when you then combine that facet with, Uh, A really robust commitment to community, to gathering community, whether that's, you know, you look back on our Instagram, for example, and you won't just see, you know, uh, STI prevention community wellness group or, um, you know, mental health support group. You'll see things like music concerts, right? You'll see things like photo shoots. You'll see things that involve arts, that involve creativity, that involve people gathering. You see things that are fun, right? I don't know of many other healthcare organizations that center community services like that. That to me feels really unique. Yeah,
1: I was just thinking about it while you were talking because I had the opportunity to go to see Aloke when you brought um, them here uh, at Bombex and um, it was just incredible to think about a healthcare provider, a non healthcare provider bringing that experience to share with the community, to be engaged, to sort of lead in that way um, I know the fat sex therapist is coming up, I already have my tickets mm-hmm. to that <laughs> pretty excited about that and then of course Pony Sweat um, is happening on Saturday, September 9th from oh, yeah. 12 to 2 at Look Park um, and if there were ever a partner in the world that would uh, align with your mission and what you believe, it's um, Pony Sweat from L.A. So Oh, yeah. Grab really your neon tights. <laughs> I'm excited about that. My, uh, my video has been in my phone for just waiting for me to put it out on Instagram. So I, I need cannot to do it. wait. I need to show it to you. M and I did it at Bombex the other day and it was pretty epic. But here we are. It's already time for another break. <laughs> This is the Western Mass Business Show. You've been listening to Tara Brewster and Dallas Ducar, who's the CEO, talk about all things health-related. We'll be
0: right back. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP.
1: Welcome back to the Western Mass Business Show. I'm Tara Brewster, and you've been listening to a great conversation I've been having with Dallas Ducar, who's the CEO of Trans Health. And somehow we've already come to our last segment. I can't even believe it. So we're going to try to fit everything else into this one. Um, So you have no more questions about anything. But um, you know, I would love to know first of all, Dallas. How can um, people sign up to be a patient? You know, what does that process look
2: like? Um, Can you tell us, please? Yeah. Well, I'm really grateful to announce that since we've gone through a massive hiring push, that we have many, many new skilled and qualified primary care providers uh, that offer many different services, uh, mental health providers as well, prescribers and therapists, or support groups. All you have to do is go to transhealth.org. There you'll find a little link on the site that says new patient. You click that, you can become a new patient. You will then get a little calendar appointment and someone will give you a call. And that's all you have to do to sign up. There you can access any of our primary care offerings. And once you're a primary care patient, you also have access to our our mental health uh, care too. Um, there's also our drop-in hours in our community room. So you can just drop in if you don't want to become patient. We have a clothing closet there. We have an expanding library there. Lots of art projects, a place where you can go play Wii, peer support groups that have over like 450 people in those. Um, and because they're hybrid, you can do them via Zoom or in person too. There's a lot of services and it just starts by, you know, arriving at our spot or going online.
1: And I do think your community room, um, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to, if you didn't, is uh, just a real marker of your identity and um, how community focused you are as an organization. Um, Because being in that community room is really warm and welcoming. There's a whole clothing closet, as you said, and, you know, supplies that you need to do different things, perhaps binding or or whatever. Um, Your need might be getting some um, health supplies um, that you might Get at a doctor's office or tapestry office or something like that, um, but also the we and the and the space to really like relax and settle into yourself and to breathe and take a pause. Yeah, um, it's not something that I've ever seen offered at a at a healthcare facility so, before.
2: So many of us spend our lives in fight or flight or freeze mode, right? And instead, this creates a sanctuary, a place where people can drop in. And how many people do you know actually want? To go to their healthcare provider's space, want to go there and you know just hang out. That's not a typical thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. The artwork too in the rooms um, I'm thinking of right now too is just really unique and different, and I think picked out by a lot of the staff and mm-hmm. maybe patients. Um, so very warm and welcoming environment. Built um, by our folks. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Well, it sense it creates a sense of ownership and, and sense of belonging. So um, that's amazing. And previously you talked about um, the pharmacy. So mm-hmm. I would love to hear more about that. Um, if you're doing it, if you're not doing it, what the stages are in. Was it easy? Was it hard? Um, why the pharmacy? Um, yeah,
2: yeah. So, so we are grateful to be supported through a federal drug pricing program. It's called 340B, and it is one of the lifebloods for many different community health uh, organizations, um, and we specifically are awarded this grant through the Department of Public Health. Um, it doesn't transfer any funds directly to us from the state, but instead it actually allows us to buy pharmaceutical medications at a cheaper cost from manufacturers, and then get those directly to patients. And so essentially it allows us to buy cheaper medications and some of that money can go back to the health center, which then allows us to recoup some cost savings from those medications. And that then allows us to provide more community programming. allows us to help provide more access to primary care to mental health care allows us to just provide the services that we already do and make this more fiscally sustainable and it also has allowed us to help patients who have otherwise would have had to pay thousands upon thousands of dollars for some of their medications instead we've been able to provide those medications without any charge and it's all because of our dedication to our patients, my hope is that we'll eventually be able to build an on-site pharmacy. We don't have that right now, but that really is where I would like to see us go.
1: Well, I'm I'm very proud of you and and the whole team over there for doing the work that you're doing and always trying to to create and and make more sort of steps on the on the stage or more platforms um, to the stage. And one other thing I wanted to talk about was advocacy. I feel like you're out and about a lot. I mean, I know that we're you know, we're connected on social media, and so I get to see you in Washington, D.C., and in Boston, and, you know, having Senator Markey come um, to Trans Health here. Um, what does that look like for you? I mean, I know from what I see, it looks like, but, you know, how are you moving the needle, not just for Trans Health and in Western Massachusetts, but how do you feel like you're moving it on a larger scale?
2: Yeah. Coalition building. It starts with coalition building and really being engaged with community partners whether it's across Massachusetts or across the country, that are really vested in the same values, uh, and really that's patient-centered values and community-oriented values too. And so that's been moving the needle on trying to increase reimbursement parity for telehealth visits, for example, and in-person visits, because insurance shouldn't reimburse less for one than the other, for example. It's also been trying to expand healthcare access. It's trying to expand, uh, you know, insurance payments. It's trying to increase more incentives in our system. It's also been trying to really uh, remedy some of our um, uh, larger uh, systemic issues that we see across different, uh, different uh, strains of healthcare too. Um, and it's you know even been going to. Uh, places like the, the White House and to other places in D.C., to different members of Congress, too. And also talking about how things like our environmental health or our civic health is related directly to health care. And all of this is, is really connected.
1: I, I love the, just the the really landing point on connection and how um, aloneness is really something that we need to, to not be doing. But I, I often think that, you know, I can't do anything if not with the community and with partners. And so I love that, you know, you're thinking about the partnership as a way to really move the needle for for more of us, for more of like the larger overarching structure of healthcare and of taking care of humans. Yeah.
2: Partnership and also having conversations, especially with those that you may not always find yourself having conversations with. Well And and that leads
1: me into the another question that I had for you was, you know, how to be an ally you know, and how to be how to be uh, in communication with people who aren't necessarily um, of the same mindset as you, or um, thinking, or, or as open as you. You know, how how do you sort of navigate those conversations? Yeah.
2: Well, there are around 21 states right now that have currently banned gender affirming care for youth, and so it's really important to note that we are at an all time high in an attack against gender-affirming health care across this country. And one of the really, really vital things to do is to begin conversations with those that may not always agree with you because the majority of the country doesn't actually know whether they know a trans person or not. And so the media can then create an idea of what a trans person looks like versus people who get to hear narratives of real trans people, right? Who might be their postal you know, deliverer, for example, might be uh, a firefighter, a nurse, for example. And to be able to know those narratives really helps to dispel myths. It's also really important to not make assumptions and to really be ready to uh, uh, provide the right uh, information uh, when people are spewing disinformation. Um, but perhaps most importantly, share focus on shared values. Focus on shared values like that everyone deserves the freedom to be able to live their own life the way that they want. They deserve the liberty to be who they are. Their own ability to pursue their own happiness. Those are core shared values in this country. And when you start at that foundation, i think we find that there's a lot more that we actually agree upon and that the disagreement is fed through misinformation
1: i agree with that and i think a lot of it comes down to to basic human needs you know when we all have needs and we all have wants and desires but you're right, they are overlapping very frequently. Um, So I just want to say thank you so much to Greenfield Savings Bank, who's one of our sponsors, and also to Business West. Finally, Craig DeLaPena, who is a realtor in Florence uh, and my neighbor, thank you so much uh, to you. And Dallas Ducar. thank you for joining. CEO of Trans Health. I love the work that you're doing and I love your leadership. Thank you for being in Western Mass with all of us. This is Tara Brewster from the Western Mass Business Show. Thanks for listening.
0: The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP.